a quick word from our sponsor today. Where do I start? Help desk software, payment software, email marketing tools, CMS and blogging tools, SEO tools, deal management tracking, pipeline tracking. You do not need more tools to get more out of your business. You just need HubSpot. Their all-in-one customer platform is the ultimate business hack for all your customer-facing teams. You can create best-in-class campaigns and automate outreach with workflows that will generate more qualified leads for your business. HubSpot will also keep track of every prospect with category-leading pipeline management so you can close more deals. Finally, you can use powerful AI chatbots and develop a knowledge base to scale your support. HubSpot is built to deliver results, drive more revenue, and to help your business grow faster than you ever thought was possible. Try it for yourself today at HubSpot.com. Again, go check out HubSpot.com today. Hello, and welcome to another episode of All the Hacks, a show about upgrading your life, money, and travel. I'm Chris Hutchins, and if you're new here, I'm a diehard optimizer who loves doing all the research to get the best experience in life without an expensive price tag. Most weeks, I sit down with the world's best to learn the strategies, tactics, and frameworks that shape their success. But today, I'm doing another mailbag episode where I'm answering all your questions. A few months ago, I explained how I was going to cycle through the next three episodes like this, first focusing on credit card points and miles, then on money and investing, and finally on life, work, non-points, travel, and anything else you wanted to send my way. And you guys certainly sent in a lot of questions, so here's how this is going to unfold. First, I'll cover a bunch of great travel questions about local tours, jet lag, cruises, travel insurance, language barriers, finding hotel rooms for five people, comparing French Polynesia to the Seychelles, and I'll also share two great hacks for airplane Wi-Fi and getting global entry appointments. Then I'll touch on a few follow-up questions to the recent episodes I did on security, about virtual credit cards, managing family information, and password managers that don't store data in the cloud. And for the rest, I don't really have a category, but I'll cover some food hacks, my favorite podcasts, how I take notes while listening, how I feel these days about my Peloton, cell phone insurance from your credit cards, virtual assistants, and how I try to avoid getting overwhelmed with all this optimizing. Now, if you're one of the dozen or so people who sent in some parenting questions and are thinking, where's my question on that list? The answer is it's not there on purpose, and that's because there's more than enough content to fill a whole episode. So Amy and I are going to co-host an episode all about the parenting hacks, tips, learnings, purchases, and more we've used for our two kids. So if you have or one day want to have kids, then know that that's coming, and I hope you enjoy it. And if you're further along on the journey than we are, I would love it if you could send any thoughts, advice, or parenting hacks you have to both of us soon so that we can incorporate them into the episode and that we can use them in our lives. Also, in the last month, it seems that the world is really coming back because I've ended up going to three conferences, and then we also had a week where our au pair was on vacation and had no childcare. So I am still playing catch up. But if you've sent me an email and haven't heard back from me in over a month, please follow up. It's entirely possible that I mistakenly archived the email and I'm sure I would love to respond. Okay, one last thing. I just want to address a review I got last week in the Apple Podcasts app from Mooper Dumpling. They said, there is a lot of advertising throughout that makes it seem like you are more interested in making money off this program than for any other reason. Look, I can't change the perception any of you have 
But I will say two things. First, I can tell you with certainty that the reason I'm doing this podcast is because I love having these conversations with guests. I love sharing that with you. I love doing research to do solo episodes. And I love helping you all upgrade and optimize your lives. In fact, the only reason I started working with sponsors was because I love doing this so much, I wanted to be able to grow it to the point that I could do it full-time or even hire people that could help it be even better. As for there being a lot of advertising, from all the research I've done and the conversations I've had with podcasters and networks, shows of this length typically have four to eight ads. In fact, I considered joining a big podcast network, but there were two big reasons I didn't. One, They required me to increase to 10 to 12 ads per episode, which I thought seemed crazy. And they wanted some of those ads to be programmatic, which meant I wouldn't have any control of the brands that were advertising on the show. And because I only want to work with brands that I love, or if I don't know them that well, I've at least done a ton of homework on them and talked to others who have used them, which wouldn't be possible at a network. And for me today means that I say no to a lot of brands, some that have even offered a lot of money. So I've capped it at four ads per episode, split across two breaks, except for those shorter bonus episodes, which have fewer. So I feel good that we're at a below average number of ads, but one option I've considered to mitigate breaking up the content twice would be to move two of those ads each episode to be pre-rolls at the very beginning before the episode starts. So you might hear me testing that in the future. And if you have an opinion, let me know. And Mooper Dumpling, if you're listening and I've convinced you at all, feel free to update your rating or anyone else, feel free to drop another five-star rating or review to help balance it out. Okay, thanks for hearing me out. It's well past time to get to the episode. So let's get started. Okay, first question. I love your podcast. Your travel hacks are my favorite. Can you please do an episode comparing Bora Bora and the Seychelles? We've been to French Polynesia, but haven't done the Seychelles. Would love to hear the difference. So I don't think I can fill an episode, but here's my take. Both are absolutely incredible, and I wouldn't pass up an opportunity to do either, but there are some really big differences. First off, depending on where you live, one might be significantly easier to get to than the other. For us on the West Coast, the Seychelles was a long flight to Paris and then a long flight to the Seychelles, that actually ended up getting canceled, so we had to fly through Dubai. So we're talking a significant investment in your time just to get there, whereas from San Francisco, you can fly direct to Papiete and take a really short flight over to Bora Bora. So just getting to French Polynesia is so much easier, but what are the main differences? So when it comes to beaches, the Seychelles beaches are unbelievable. They are the most picturesque, beautiful beaches I've seen in the entire world. And in Bora Bora, it's much more about the overwater bungalow. The water is so clear, it's so beautiful, but I don't actually remember spending a lot of time on them. And the beaches definitely aren't as beautiful and picturesque as they are in the Seychelles. Another thing, when you get to Bora Bora, and keep in mind, I haven't spent a lot of time in the rest of French Polynesia, so I'm gonna focus on Bora Bora. You arrive at the airport, and from the airport, you get on a boat that's maybe 100 feet from baggage claim that takes you straight to your hotel. So it's much more of an isolated experience. In fact, the first time we went, we went to the main island on Bora Bora and we walked around and it didn't really feel like a city center. It felt like there was a little store, a market, a bunch of diamond shops, some tourism stuff, 
a couple restaurants, but there wasn't a lot going on. Whereas going downtown in the Seychelles, there was a food market, there was all kinds of stuff happening, locals mixing with travelers. It was really, really interesting. And I felt like you could really immerse yourself in what was going on there. And it was just because the main island is much bigger and easier to get around. I felt like going to the Seychelles, you really get to experience the country more. Now, I'm sure if I stayed in the main island of Tahiti and I spent a bunch of time there, I would have a similar experience. So I would say, take this all with a grain of salt. But a lot of the really amazing five-star experiences that you'd have in the Seychelles are on the main island. Whereas in French Polynesia, a lot of them are on Bora Bora or maybe on another island. So I think that you can do one place easier in the Seychelles and get that experience without feeling like you're hopping between islands. That said, I don't personally remember from our trip, and maybe it's the time, a really distinct, unique culture in the Seychelles like I did going to French Polynesia. There is a very unique Polynesian culture that most of the hotels try to infuse in one of the nights of the week and the experience. And that really stuck with me, which is something that didn't happen in the Seychelles. Now, maybe that's my fault for not immersing myself in it, but it wasn't something that felt like it was a common thread through everything you do. Most of the hotels in the Seychelles, at least all of the ones that we saw and looked at, were just normal kind of be- luxury, beautiful hotels, but they, there weren't these overwater bungalows. So if you're going for that experience, I think that's where you want to go. So ultimately for me, it comes down to If you're trying to relax and you don't really want to do anything other than sit at a hotel and you live on the West Coast or probably anywhere in the States, Bora Bora, I think is a much easier trip. But if you want to see something totally different and you're willing to take a long trip or maybe you're based in Europe or Africa or Asia, the Seychelles is definitely worth checking out. Just know that you're not getting that overwater bungalow experience. If you live in that part of the world and you want to go on an overwater bungalow, it seems like Maldives is your place. I've never been, but It's certainly on my list. And I think something that when the kids are older or when we can escape for another week, we might consider it. But right now, traveling halfway around the world just seems like a much bigger ordeal than it did two years ago when we didn't have kids. Speaking of kids, Jesse wrote in a question asking if I had any tips for hotels when traveling with a family of five. Looks like most hotels have a four-person limit on rooms. And the only workaround Jesse found was to book two rooms or book a two-bedroom suite which can be really expensive. He asked, is there anything, whether it's a loyalty program or some deal to make that possible? So I thought about this a lot and I even asked a friend in the industry. His advice was that if your kids are under six, you can kind of just sneak them in and not worry about it. When we were in Hawaii recently, we asked the hotel to bring in a rollaway bed and a crib and they were willing to do both. So you could have fit two people on each of the two queen beds and then two kids in the rollaway and the crib But the problem is that when you book online and the hotel asks, they won't let you book that room if you have more than four people. So I'd say call the hotel. It never hurts to call and say, hey, is it possible to do this? Because you might get a different answer. Um, Or maybe that's a great circumstance for an Airbnb because most Airbnbs don't have a capacity on the number of people like hotels do. I don't want to speak to the legality of bringing extra kids in, sneaking them in. But I I will say that physically, I think those people will fit. Maybe read the reviews, maybe call the hotel and see what you can do. If anyone has any other tips for this question or really any of the questions today, send them in. I'd love to share them. Okay, Johnny wrote in asking for advice or hacks on deals for cruises. And honestly, I don't have a good answer here, but I wanted to still bring it up on this episode 
Because if enough people are interested in cruises, I might make a whole episode on it. I've only been on one cruise and somehow I both liked it and haven't been on another. But I feel like once our kids are getting a little older, it's worth trying again. And, you know, there is a whole range of cruises from, you know, the most crazy Disney family carnival kind of cruises you think of all the way to, I remember seeing Instagram posts from Ramit Sethi of the most beautiful luxury cruise in Japan that ever since I saw, I've been very interested in going on. So the whole topic of cruises is something that I think I'm fascinated by. My parents recently did this amazing wine country cruise down a river in France. So there's just a whole lot to this whole space that I don't know. So if this is an interesting topic to you and you think it's worth digging in, you can shoot me a quick note and I'll start doing some homework. Okay, Todd wrote in asking, he'd love to travel to many faraway locations away from typical tourist areas. But his concern was being stuck or stumped by the language barrier, and that's kept him from being more adventurous. He doesn't speak another language beyond English and wanted to know what I suggest or how I've dealt with this. So honestly, I don't really worry about it at all. When Amy and I were backpacking for seven and a half months, we were doing most of our travel by land, and we ended up in some very rural places in Africa, in India, in Southeast Asia, and in the Middle East. And I found a few things. First, you can communicate a lot with very, very few, if not zero words. Your hand gestures, pointing, pictures, like you'd be surprised. And in some cases, when we first got to Aleppo in Syria, um, we were lost. We weren't sure where we were going. Someone came up to us. They didn't speak English and they picked out their cell phone and they called someone who did that helped translate between the two of us so that the person we ran into could actually help us find where we were going. And they were so excited to talk to us, even though we couldn't actually communicate, that they insisted that we stop by their home and have a coffee and get to meet their family, which we did the entire time not speaking the same language. So I think if you just embrace that the experience is something different than necessarily having a conversation, I think you can have an incredible time. And there's almost always some common ground. I think One of the great things about the English language is that so much of music, so much of media and culture is done in English that even if someone doesn't speak it fluently, you might be able to get across a few things. I think the other thing that I see sometimes when we're traveling is that people who speak English are trying to speak English in another country the same way they speak it in the States. You have to learn a whole different version of slower and kind of more simplified English, if you want to be really successful, having a conversation with people who don't speak English as their first language. So I would just say, learn to be very patient, learn to speak slow, learn to break things down in a much more simple way than using the entire vocabulary you might use back home. And I think you can go anywhere and make it work. Does it help to have a phone with Google Translate if you're in a bind? Sure. Does it help to learn a few phrases every time you're entering a new country so that you can kind of at least feel like you're making an effort also? Absolutely. I feel like I still know how to say hello and how are you and please and excuse me in like 10, 15 languages, even though that's the extent of the entire language that I know. So I would say don't let this get in the way. If all that fails and you don't feel like that's enough, you could always try to hire a local translator or guide. I'm sure you can find someone or take a free walking tour whenever you get to the city and see if that person might know someone if you don't know how to find them online 
I feel like there are enough options that language barrier should never be the reason that you don't go somewhere. Okay, Georgina wrote in about how she'd love to take a trip at the end of the year, but the worker who's helping take care of one of her family members recently left, and she wants to make sure she can find a replacement before then. So she didn't know whether she should buy the ticket now, wait, or consider cancel for any reason travel insurance. So this is a tough one, but I have a few thoughts. Partially because we looked at taking this new airline, Zip Air, to get to Japan because they had ridiculously cheap flights from LA. And the only downside was they have a fully non-refundable ticket. So unlike most of the US airlines where, yes, it's non-refundable, but you can still get a credit, um, this was fully non-refundable, zero back except maybe your taxes. So we thought about it, and then we also looked at cancel for any reason travel insurance, which I had never purchased before. What I learned is it's not that much more expensive than regular travel insurance. It's usually about one and a half to two times the cost of a regular travel insurance policy, which might be 5% of your trip. And it covers you, like it says, for any reason. So if your flight is non-refundable and you have to cancel it, they're going to reimburse you. But they usually don't reimburse 100%. It's usually around 75%. So there's still a cost. And this is where some of the data on Google Flights, where they look at you know what an average fare is. If you figure if you have to cancel this, you're going to end up paying 25% plus maybe another 5 to 10 for the travel policy. So a third of the cost you're not going to get back. If it looks like the average airfare for this flight or the hotels or whatever it is might end up costing 2x if you wait to book it, then it might be a really good deal instead of waiting. However, don't forget that If you book with a lot of the domestic US airlines, and you can look into this for international airlines, if you have to cancel that trip, you can usually get a credit back. Now, that credit usually only works on that airline, sometimes with their partners. So I would say, if I were going that path, I'd really prioritize an airline that I thought I'd be able to use in the next year or two so that I could take advantage of that credit, not lose it. Or if you're listening to this show and you have miles, most airlines, if you book with miles and cancel, you will be able to get all your miles back and maybe pay a award redeposit fee is what they're often called, a fee to cancel and put those miles back. So I'd say the best move you can do if you have points or miles is to book with miles. Know that if you're transferring those miles to an airline like Air France or Turkish Air, you're gonna get those miles back in that program. But that doesn't mean you can't use them to book a flight on United or on Delta or on you know American, depending on who the partners are. So if it were me, and I was in a situation where I thought there was a good chance I'd have to cancel the trip. I'd first try to book it with miles. I'd then look at the data about what happens with the airfare, and I'd consider waiting if the airfare doesn't look like it usually gets significantly more expensive. One quick thought was we were just in Hawaii, and it turns out that our flight times changed so much that we were going to get back way after bedtime. And two days before flying home, I looked, and I could cancel our United flight for free because of the schedule change, And I booked another flight on Alaska that got in earlier and I actually saved money because the fares were cheaper. So last minute isn't always more expensive, even if you're paying with dollars. But if you don't want to take that risk and you want to lock it in now, maybe there's an incredible fare. I would consider cancel for any reason travel insurance, but just know that you're not going to get back the full fare. And if the airline, when you try to cancel, offers you a credit and you take that credit, you're almost certainly not going to get the travel insurance to cover you. So I'm almost positive that you have to refuse any credits the airline offers you when you cancel in order to get reimbursed by travel insurance. But obviously, read the fine print, call the travel insurance company. I am not always the expert on every single policy. 
In today's internet age, people's personal information is being shared online with the click of a button without their consent, and it happens all the time. But you can tackle this problem thanks to Delete Me from Abine, and I am excited to be partnering with them for this episode. When I used to Google myself, I would find hundreds of detailed profiles sharing my cell phone number, address, email, family members, and a lot more. At first, I actually tried to remove it all myself, which you can do, but after at least 10 hours, I signed up for Delete Me and it was so much easier. Their software and team of experts will not just find and remove your personal information from hundreds of data broker websites, but they'll continuously scan for new data that shows up and get that removed as well. On average, Delete Me finds and removes over 2,000 pieces of data for a customer in their first two years. So if you want to get your personal information removed from search results on the web, go to allthehacks.com slash delete me and get 20% off a plan for you or your entire family. Again, that's allthehacks.com slash delete me. So I am quite comfortable right now, which is actually true almost every day, and that's thanks to Viore, and I'm excited to be partnering with them for this episode. They make performance apparel that's incredibly versatile. Everything is designed to work out in, but it doesn't look or feel like it at all, and it's so freaking comfortable, you will want to wear it all the time. Seriously, I am pretty sure it's more comfortable than whatever you're wearing right now, unless you're wearing Viore, in which case you already know what I mean. And it's not just for men. My wife is as obsessed with Viore as I am. My favorite is the Sunday Performance Joggers. I think I have three pairs, and they are probably the most comfortable pants I've ever owned. Their products can be used for just about any activity, whether it's running, training, or yoga. They're also great for lounging, running around town, or their meta pants can even work for a night out. Honestly, I think Viore is an investment in your happiness, and for all the Hacks listeners, they are offering 20% off your first purchase, as well as free shipping and returns on U.S. orders over $75. So, you should definitely check them out at allthehacks.com slash Viore, or in the link in the show notes. Again, go to allthehacks.com slash V-U-O-R-I, and get yourself some of the most comfortable and versatile clothing on the planet. Okay, while we're talking about big trips, Deja wrote in, I listen to the podcast regularly. I really enjoy it. We're new to credit card points and love how it opens up all these options. She has a big international trip coming next year. It's the first one and she's crossing seven time zones and wanted to know my hacks for jet lag. So thank you so much for listening and congrats on your first international trip. I'm so excited for you. You're right. We haven't done an episode on jet lag, but it's a great question. So here are some of my tips. I always try to get on the new time zone as much as possible, factoring in what I think is going to happen on the flight. So if we had a 10-hour flight leaving San Francisco at 4 p.m. to London, which is eight hours ahead, and it lands at 10.30 in the morning, I want to try to be able to sleep for about six hours on that flight so that when I land, I feel refreshed enough to make it through the whole day, which means I need to be tired when I'm getting on this flight at 4 p.m. So I'm going to try to go to bed super early the night before, maybe even two nights before. I'm going to force myself to wake up really early in the morning so that I get tired by the afternoon. And if your schedule permits, you could even try to completely switch to the time zone before. I know it's a little tricky when it comes to you know work schedules and light outdoors, but one app that I've heard so many great things about, but I haven't used yet, is called Time Shifter. So I would definitely check that app out. It's literally built just for this. You can go in and tell them your travel plans, where you're going, and they're going to propose a way to schedule 
your days in advance of that flight so you can arrive and get as close as you can to that new time zone and avoid jet lag as much as possible. A few other things that I always try to do, I try to stay really hydrated and I try to avoid caffeine and alcohol on the flight. I know sometimes you're using all these points and you're flying business class and they're offering you all this free champagne and it feels crazy for me to sometimes just decline it. And look, if you're celebrating your honeymoon, go for it. But I really try to avoid those things as much as possible so I can get the right sleep so I can make sure to hit the ground running and not lose a day or two of jet lag. A few other things. When I'm in a new destination, I try to be outside as much as possible so I can let sunlight do its thing. And I really try to avoid taking a nap even if I'm tired the first day or two. I remember when we got to Budapest, we thought, oh, what if we just take a one-hour nap? And we laid down at like two in the afternoon and we ended up sleeping for six hours and it was a total mess. So last thing, I've heard wonders about taking melatonin and that helping regulate your sleep cycle and getting you back on track. Hasn't been something I've needed to try, but definitely worth considering if you're really worried. So once you're in your destination, Pat wrote in asking about the kind of food tours that I mentioned I love doing when we get to a new city. Something he's really excited to do when he gets to Barcelona and wanted to know whether I just jump into any group tour, whether I book a private one, and trying to figure out what's legit and what's not, what sites and services to check out, and how to make sure he's going to take a great tour. So for me, I actually like taking small group tours more than a private tour because I get a chance to meet people that have maybe been in the city for a few days. They have some experiences to share. Part of why I love traveling is meeting new people. Many times I've met people that are from other countries and I've learned a little bit about where they're from and it's sparked new ideas for future trips. At least 50% of the time we've done a group tour, we've actually ended up hanging out or having drinks with the people we've met on the tour and sometimes like multiple times. Some of them we've even stayed in touch with for years. But sometimes a private tour is a better fit for what we want. Maybe it's the schedule. Maybe we want to do something really different. Maybe we want to work a few different things in, or maybe we just can't find what we're looking for. But when we're looking for stuff, I booked tours on With Locals and had a good experience on Airbnb. Peak.com, I think, has some tours. You can find them on TripAdvisor, but I just try to make sure I read all the reviews. There are private tour companies, which can be great, but they can also be so expensive. If you find someone that's a local writer, you, you can oftentimes email them. Maybe they write for a newspaper and ask them if they'd be willing to set up a tour if they know anyone. Or if you get to a city and you take a free walking tour, you can always ask that person. Many people in the tourism industry know a lot of the other people in that same industry. So you can kind of network your way there. But honestly, if I look at all the tours we've ever taken, we've only had one bad experience. And it was so easy to fix because we just bailed on the tour halfway through. It was a tour we booked of the Acropolis in Greece, and it ended up being just way too deep in history. And we were just not interested. And it was so hot that we just kind of said, we'll run out of time. We've got to run. And we called it. I think if I had read more reviews, I probably would have come to that conclusion. But we'd booked a few tours on with locals that had gone so well. I think I just went with it. But yeah, I'd say read the reviews and go in with an open mind, and I feel like it will be a great experience almost every time. Before I wrap up travel, two hacks that I love. So one, if you have T-Mobile, and, and, and this will work if it's a close family member, friend, your spouse, there are some airlines, Alaska being one of them, where T-Mobile will get you free internet. But it's almost always on mobile only. So if you open up on your iPhone or your Android, it'll say, oh, sign in with T-Mobile and get free internet. Well, if you're on your laptop, Go into your browser and you can actually open up the developer tools 
on Chrome command option I, and you pull up this inspector. Unless you want to go play with HTML and CSS, you don't need to use this, but there's a little icon in the top left that looks like an iPhone on top of an iPad. And if you click that, it actually shows you a view of what the website you're looking at looks like on mobile. Well, what I found is that if you switch to that mobile view on your laptop, you'll actually refresh the page and get the mobile version of the Wi-Fi portal. And it'll say, if you have T-Mobile, you can log in and get free internet. So I have a T-Mobile line with one gig of data that is like $20 a month that I use for international travel and free Wi-Fi. So if I'm on my laptop, I do this, I log in with my phone number and boom, free Wi-Fi on a computer. It doesn't have to be on your phone. So I would also consider asking any friends you have that are close if they have T-Mobile. I know that when my wife's been traveling, I just give her my T-Mobile number. And as long as I'm not flying the same day, it's really easy for her to use it to get Wi-Fi too. Thank you, T-Mobile, for making this possible. Don't delete my account. So that's one hack that I love. The other, I got a few requests in the last few months from people about what to do about getting a global entry appointment. And I didn't have a good answer until we recently tried to get a global entry appointment for our four-month-old and realized it's almost impossible in some cities. I went on and looked in San Francisco and it was literally there are none. And I was like, wow. So I started looking online and someone says, keep refreshing the site. For the San Francisco airport, there was a Twitter account that posts when there's an appointment. And then I found a site, Appointment Scanner. And it is amazing. You know those times where you find a product and you're just like, this is exactly the product I need for this circumstance. So I literally signed up for Appointment Scanner. And for context, it's $29. It's a one-time payment. It's not a subscription. You get alerts for a month. And within a couple hours of signing up, I already had an appointment booked for our daughter the next month. Over the course of the next few weeks, I left the appointment alerts running just so I could get a sense of how often things open up. And it's crazy. I was probably getting anywhere from three to 10 alerts a day of new appointments, and almost all of them were in the next couple of months. So big fan of Appointment Scanner. If you need a global entry appointment, they send email alerts, text message alerts, And I would be so surprised if you couldn't get an appointment set up within a couple weeks of using the product, if not a couple days. And they have a 100% money back guarantee if you don't find anything. So definitely check it out. The only catch is, at least for San Francisco, you need to be ready to book that appointment within like a minute. So if you're using a password manager, make sure your password's there. I would even go as far as to kind of notice, is there a time of day where they seem to be posting them and log in to the Trusted Traveler Program site so you can get ready to snag that appointment. But definitely check out Appointment Scanner. I asked them if they had a deal for listeners because I wanted to give you guys one. They set me up with a link. It'll help support the show if you sign up through there, but there's no special discount. So you can go to allthehacks.com slash global entry if you want to help us out. But definitely consider Appointment Scanner if you need a global entry appointment. It was so good. Moving on to security and identity protection and everything I talked about a few weeks ago. I can't believe I left something off, but thank you, Jeff, for reminding me. He reached out to let me know I forgot to talk about using virtual credit cards as a way not to spread your credit card number around the internet when you don't have to. So he said that there's a lot of cards that do this now. He's using the X1 card and really loving that feature. I'm using my Adventure X card online, not just because I think it's a great card for earning points online at 2x points, but because Capital One has a browser extension. They call it Eno. And anytime you're checking out on a site, you can generate a virtual card number and you can set rules about when it expires and then you don't have to type your number online. 
So I use that with AdventureX. It's great. I highly recommend anytime you're on a website that is not something you want to trust for anything, using a virtual card number. If you don't have a card that supports it, there's an awesome site called privacy.com that will make it really easy to generate virtual card numbers. However, you have to pay for everything with privacy with a bank account instead of your credit cards. You're not going to earn points. You're not going to get purchase protection. So I would say if you have the X1 card like Jeff, you could do that. If your card supports this already, you could do that. If not, I think this is a great use for the Venture or the Venture X card because the Capital One browser extension is so simple. My only complaint is that it hijacks Command Shift E, which is also centering text in Google Docs. So I can no longer use a keyboard shortcut to center text in Google Docs. Capital One, if you're listening, please give me an option to change the keyboard shortcut. And if you don't have the Capital One Venture X or Venture card and you want to, right now they're still doing 75,000 point signup bonus, which is worth almost $1,500. And you can get that at allthehacks.com slash cards if you want to support the show. Jason wrote in talking about Trustworthy, which I've had as a sponsor. And he wanted to know if I could go into a bit more detail about how I use it and what other systems might exist to protect all of the information and make sure family members have access to it. He pointed out that $20 a month is a little expensive and wanted to know other options that might be better than his spreadsheet Google Doc system. So as far as how to make it work and how to set it up and how access works, it's really simple. And keep in mind, Trustworthy is no longer a sponsor of the show, but you know I am an investor, so I want a full disclosure. But it's really easy because you could just go in and add your anyone in your family and they have access and you can also add anyone outside of your immediate family and they can create an account that will give them the ability to get access if something ever happens to you. But it doesn't just give them access to everything in there. They're, they're effectively emergency contacts. So setting up Trustworthy is super simple. I believe they have a free trial so you can go test it out. I love it because it's just an organized way to find everything. So we've got you know, tax returns, we've got driver's license, insurance cards, the kind of stuff that it's just like, oh, which Dropbox folder is it in? So I really like the product. Yes, it's not free. And for me as a frugal person, it's been hard. But when I find products that just make my life simpler and help me feel good, I've become okay with just letting that be an expense that's something I'm comfortable with. But if you want an alternative, something that you could consider is putting everything in one password and giving the emergency kit to your 1Password to the people you want to have access to it. It's not quite perfect because one, you have to give access to basically everything in your life to the same person. Whereas on Trustworthy, you don't have to put everything in there if you don't want to. The other thing, it's not really that organized. So maybe you have to create a secure note in your 1Password and tell someone how to use it. And you have to use some of their information types to you know, use inver- store information or upload files that might be otherwise different but I think it could work. You could also put in a secure note that explains how to get through your Dropbox or your Google Drive. But I just found that Trustworthy lined it, laid it out really simply. We paid for a year. I, I think there's a lot of stuff they could do in the future, and I hope they will. And I hope that maybe adds even more value and makes it an even easier decision for you. There are also a bunch of other companies that do a similar product, and I signed up for trials for them. I can't remember all of them, but I just felt like Trustworthy did it better, which is why I ended up investing in a company. And so... Yeah, that, that, that's kind of how I've been thinking about it and, and why I'm willing to pay because I just want to be able to organize all of this information. And they've been taking feedback really well. So there are some things that I suggested putting in there, like the contact info for all of the service providers, whether it's your cleaning person or your you know pest control, 
that's something they've recently added. So I just love seeing the product evolve and being kind of that central place to manage not your schedule, not your family kind of day to day, but that bigger picture life organization stuff. And despite that they're not sponsors, it looks like if you go to allthehacks.com slash trustworthy, you can still get 20% off. So I don't know how long that will last, but it's still there right now. Final one on security. Joanne was confused about password managers because she doesn't like her information being stored in the cloud, which one password used to not require and now does. And wanted to know if a password protected Excel spreadsheet is enough. She pointed out that she also travels with an encrypted flash drive. Look, I'm not going to say it's not a good option, right? I know people that store their passwords in a note on the iPhone. So putting in a password protected spreadsheet, especially now that Office has real encryption, is better than alternatives. But I still prefer using a password manager. And if I wanted to keep everything local, I'd use KeePass. It's open source. I'll actually correct that. I'd use KeePass XC. KeePass is an open source password manager that stores everything locally. I wouldn't say the user interface is as good as 1Password or some of the other products out there, but it is local. So if that's what you want, I would definitely check it out. It's been forked into different versions. There was KeePass, then there was KeePass X, and then KeePass XC. From all my research and everything I know, KeePass XC has the best apps that are the most user-friendly. So that's what I'd be using if I really cared about keeping everything stored locally. All right, so that's security. I want to jump into a bunch of other topics that I'm really excited to answer. I really appreciate you all sending in these kind of random off-topic questions. They're so fun to answer, so please keep them coming. In the future, I don't know if I'll do travel Q&A, money Q&A, or I'll just kind of throw all the questions in there. So whether you have a question in any of those topics, send them my way, chris at allthehacks.com. I love doing these episodes and hopefully you enjoy them too. Whether it's researching investments, comparing performance, trying to read up on the news, or looking into a company's financial statements, it seems like there is an unlimited number of places to get your information, but my go-to site for all things investing is actually the same site I've been using for over a decade. It keeps getting better and better and also happens to be our sponsor today, Yahoo Finance. Whether you're a seasoned investor or just getting started, Yahoo Finance has all the tools and data you need in one place. Well, Actually, two places because they also have a great mobile app. You'll get a holistic view of the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original editorial perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. It's probably why they've been trusted for over 25 years and by over 90 million users each month who are working towards their own financial success. So for comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind so many great investors, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com, that's yahoofinance.com. I love helping you answer all the toughest questions about life, money, and so much more, but sometimes it's helpful to talk to other people in your situation, which actually gets harder as you build your wealth. So I want to introduce you to today's sponsor, Long Angle. Long Angle is a community of high net worth individuals with backgrounds in everything from technology, finance, medicine, to real estate, law, manufacturing, and more. I'm a member of Long Angle. I've loved being a part of the community, and I've even had one of the founders, Tad Fallows, join me on All the Hacks in episode 87 to talk about alternative investments. Now, the majority of Long Angle members are first-generation wealth, young, highly successful individuals who join the community to share knowledge and learn from each other in a confidential, unbiased setting. 
On top of that, members also get access to some unique private market investment opportunities. Like I said, I'm a member and I've gotten so much value from the community because you're getting advice and feedback from people in a similar situation to you on everything from your investment portfolio to your children's education to finding a concierge doctor. So many of these conversations aren't happening anywhere else online. So if you have more than 2.2 million in investable assets, which is their minimum for membership, I encourage you to check out Long Angle and it's totally free to join. Just go to longangle.com to learn more. And if you choose to apply, be sure to let them know you heard about it here. Again, that's longangle.com. I just want to thank you, Quick, for listening to and supporting the show. Your support is what keeps this show going. To get all of the URLs, codes, deals, and discounts from our partners, you can go to allthehacks.com slash deals. So please consider supporting those who support us. So first one from David is what are my favorite podcasts and why? So this is a hard one because I listen to a lot of podcasts, but not all of that podcast, right? I find an episode that I'm excited about. I listen to it. But that doesn't mean I necessarily subscribe. So I'll start with the podcast I listen to pretty much every episode of. That's All In, Animal Spirits, and My First Million. All In is a show, I don't even know how to explain it, but basically four kind of tech industry vets and I think mostly billionaires just kind of get together every week and talk about the state of the world. But the thing I love is that the four guys that host it have no concern saying things that are not you know, mainstream opinions, not what the media is saying. They're saying it how they feel it is. And they have a perspective from the access they have to people around the world and information that they get that I don't, that I just think is totally fascinating. So it ends up being kind of maybe one third about tech, which is the industry I'm in, but it's not just like nuanced details about the industry. Sometimes it's broader things about the trends that are happening in those companies the types of benefits they're offering, the hiring plans, the layoffs, things like VR and and whether that's actually a thing and where it's going. But it's also a lot about markets and the economy and what's going on, about things that I I won't say politics, but there is a a, a tone of politics, but presenting both sides. And I don't know, I just think it's a really good podcast that exposes me to perspectives that I don't find I get in other places. I also listen to the Wednesday episodes of Animal Spirits every week. I think Michael and Ben do a really great job of two things. The primary thing being kind of commentary on the current market. You know, what's going on, what's happening, why it's happening, their perspective being in this every day. But then they also at the end give recommendations on TV shows and movies. And I just, I think we our, our tastes overlap. I've had Ben from the show on All the Hacks. He's a friend of mine, but I think it's a really great show. And I was listening before we even got connected. Finally. I really enjoy listening to My First Million. I just think it's kind of inspiration for the entrepreneurial side of my brain. And I'm constantly hearing about new business ideas I hadn't thought about. And it just, even if I'm not going to build those specific businesses, it pushes me to think in different ways. And the banter between Sean and Sam is great. So highly recommend that as well. Then a lot of the other shows I like are either kind of current world situation dependent or kind of mood dependent. If I need a laugh, I love listening to Smartless. I think it's one of the funniest podcasts out there. I don't really even care who the guests are. The banter and the you know heckling between each other is just next level. So love that podcast. 
If I feel like I really want to get into what's going on in the world on topics, I love PBS NewsHour. You know, I know it's a show, and it, but it's also available in podcast form. And I love the daily, but I wouldn't say I listen to each one every single time. It's just when there's a topic going on in the world, like, you know, the beginning of some major global event, I like to get brushed up there, especially when it comes to elections and politics. I think PBS NewsHour does a better job than most outlets of trying to be impartial. I know it's very hard for almost anyone to do these days. I think they do a better job than many. When I'm trying to really dive into the markets, investing what's happening, trends like what's happening when you know oil futures were basically going crazy, I love the podcast Macro Voices. It is a very deep, nerdy dive into the investment world, but I love it. When I just want an interview to go really deep on a person, I love the interviews Ritual does and Tim Ferriss does. And then there's a really fascinating show I'll recommend called How to Take Over the World that a guy named Ben Wilson, who's recently become a friend, runs, where he basically synthesizes all the information out there about historical figures, great leaders and thinkers. And he tells their story in a way that I think is so fascinating. So definitely recommend checking that show out. The Thomas Edison episode was really, really great. When I'm trying to think about money and I just want to kind of learn a little bit about how people are thinking. Ramit Sethi, another guest of the show, does a podcast called I Will Teach You To Be Rich, which is just something that, you know, I I think about podcast formats sometimes and, and how so many are similar. And his show is very different. He does an anonymous conversation with couples about money that really just shines a light in an area that is very rarely seen in public. So, If you're really trying to think about money issues with your spouse or just want to understand how people think about money, I definitely check that out. And then as a new creator, I've really, really started enjoying the Colin and Samir show. You can watch on YouTube or as a podcast, but they just have these really incredible interviews with other creators. They just did two, one with Mr. Beast, one with Hasan Minaj, and they were just so fascinating. Look, if you're not a creator, it might not be fascinating, but David, you asked what my favorite podcasts are, so I'm throwing it out there. There are probably another dozen or two dozen podcasts that I've listened to a handful of episodes on and, and I follow, but I'm actually a pretty big podcast searcher. So if I'm looking for a topic or I'm looking to listen to an interview of someone, I'll just search Spotify, which I think has the best search of all podcast apps, and I'll find an episode and listen to it. And if I enjoy it, you know, I might check out some other episodes from that podcaster, but not necessarily feel like I have to listen to every episode. So I do have my podcast that I love and I listen to every episode of, and then some that just come and go. But a follow-up, though completely unrelated from Gavin, was if I knew any software or tips to help bookmark and save information via podcasts. So he, he pointed out that he ends up stopping this show and taking notes on his phone, but didn't know if there was a way to make this more seamless. So I'll link to one article that I found that I thought was kind of interesting in the show notes about how to do this. But I would say there's not a perfect answer here. I remember back in college, Microsoft Word for Mac had this amazing feature where you could hit record on your computer and take notes. And every time you typed a word, it would link that word to the timestamp in the audio. I would love it if one of the podcast apps out there would let me take notes as I'm listening and link those notes to the timestamp so that I could go back and find that part of the episode. If that exists and I couldn't find it in the research for this question, please let me know. Some of the things that I've tried that I think are helpful. One, if I'm listening to a show and I want to take notes, I'll carry a notebook. I find that if I write things down in pen and paper, it helps me remember it and I can quickly just jot down the timestamp. 
If I'm listening in Spotify, I can share the episode and you can actually share it with the timestamp. So I can share that or save that in a note on Apple Notes and come back to it. Or if you're in Overcast, you can share and you can create a clip depending on whether you really want to clip something or you just want to remember this timestamp. Or an even simpler solution, you can just take a screenshot with a timestamp using this new feature on iOS 16, which I love, which is copy and delete. So you take a screenshot, you can go in, you can close out, you can delete it so it doesn't save your camera roll, but copy it before, and then just go paste it in notes and add something or email it to yourself. So I don't think this is perfectly solved. That's why I try my best to go in and create show notes that'll make it easy for you to go back and find the different segments of the podcast, find the links of the things we're talking about. I've thought about transcripts. You know, it costs money to get someone to go and make that transcript. If that's something that you guys would get a lot of value out of, let me know. And I'll consider getting someone to help create transcripts for the episode and put those up on the website as well. Okay, a few more. Rutha said she'd heard me talking about the Peloton on a podcast and wanted to know if I still liked it. She's considering whether she does kind of the DIY version or the Peloton or an MYX fitness bike, and she's not sure which path to go. I wrote an article many years ago, I called a $2,000 discount on a Peloton, where I shared how I built a DIY Peloton. It's still up at chrishutchins.com. And you know, for a year or two, we had the Peloton experience, or at least what I at the time thought was the Peloton experience, for a much less expensive price. We bought a few hundred dollar bike. We attached some sensors that connected over Bluetooth to an iPad. And we paid the monthly fee to use the Peloton classes. And I could get some of the data on cadence and speed, but not everything. And I felt really great. And then a friend of mine was moving and didn't want to move his Peloton. And I bought it from him. And I realized that the DIY version just didn't come close to the experience. And at least for me, there's one really big component of the Peloton product that keeps me coming back. And that is that you can race against yourself and others. So for my personality, and this is why I don't really like SoulCycle, I am so motivated by trying to beat some record that I've set or a friend set that I push myself harder every subsequent ride on the Peloton because I want to do better than I did last time. So for me, the DIY solution didn't provide that. And ultimately meant it was like it didn't have the thing that pushed me to work harder. So I would never go back to the DIY solution. But if you're on a tight budget, or that feature doesn't matter to you, or if you can motivate yourself in a way that I can't, then that's great. You don't need it. But for me, I love it. And you know, I don't think I'd do it any other way. Okay, Angela wrote in saying, I need hacks for food, planning what to eat, buying food, coordinating meals. You know, it's something that happens three times a day, every day. And the overhead is just a lot. And so she wanted to know my ideas. So I would say, I haven't nailed this, but I have tried a few things that I think would be helpful to share. My first recommendation every time here is meal prep, which is very, very different than hiring a chef, which can be super expensive. But hiring someone local who can prep meals and drop them off and you can reheat them. If you can't find someone searching online, you can post an ad on Craigslist, which I've done. I'll even link to the actual ad I posted, which resulted in me finding someone that for, I'd say about halfway between the cost of groceries and the cost of ordering carryout every night, you could get someone cooking to the dietary restrictions and you know diet needs you have every night of the week, usually once or twice a week so that it's not dropping food off every single day and putting that food in the fridge and you have it on hand and you save so much time. 
my wife and I actually like to cook. So we go back and forth. We kind of go in phases of, okay, we're doing meal prep. Okay, we're going to take a break from meal prep. When we're not doing meal prep and we're actually buying groceries ourselves, shopping ourselves, cooking ourselves, I love the Paprika app. I know it's an expensive app. I know you have to pay for it on each platform you use it on, but I think it's so good and it's worth it for us. It has three main functions. One, it is our database of recipes. Anytime we find a recipe anywhere on the internet, we use their bookmark extension and we save the recipe in Paprika that we have it. Two, it is a meal planner. So we throw those recipes and we say, we're going to make this one on Tuesday. We're going to make this one on Wednesday. We're going to make this one on Friday. And we do all of that every week so that we can plan out what we're having. And then third, it's a grocery list organizer. So you can take all those recipes that you have planned for the week, add them all to a grocery list, uncheck the ones you already have in your pantry. And it does an okay job of trying to remember which things you've bought. You might, you know, by, by default, unchecking or checking boxes, but I think you still have to review it all. And we use this app every week and it's so, so, so good. I'm sure there are other apps that do the same thing. And so you don't have to spend the money on Paprika. I just think a friend of mine recommended it once. Thank you, Phil Toronto. And, you know, it's just, I, I love it. So a couple things that make it really easy. We found like 20 recipes. We've rated them all five stars in the app, put them in a folder to make life easier. We just, every week, those recipes make up three to four of the meals a week. So yes, each week we'll try one recipe that's new, but we'll also just rotate through the 20 that we really like, we know are healthy, we know how to cook, we have almost all the kind of basic spice level ingredients for, and it just makes the overhead of cooking so much easier because we're not trying to come up with five new meals every single week. We're like, here's our database, we're going to pull from this, that covers 80% of the meals, and we'll add one new one. Maybe we'll add none, or maybe one week we'll be really inspired. But that's really helped us, you know, make that machine move faster. And then I just bite the bullet and we pay for groceries to be delivered either often on Amazon Fresh, sometimes if we're looking for things that aren't there with Whole Foods delivery. And, and that makes it a lot faster to get groceries because I can go order those groceries at 1030 at night before I go to bed instead of needing to drive to the grocery store. That said, our two-year-old really loves riding in carts at grocery stores. So if it's an activity for your kids, then, you know, now we've been doing some of our grocery shopping like that. But if not, if she's not in the mood to go to the grocery store, I'm not either. I'll order online. The one thing that I think Amazon does better than every other grocery delivery service is I don't think they've ever not had something. They keep track of what's in stock and what's in their inventory because they're not actually running a store. And so you're not missing an ingredient. Every time I've ordered from Instacart, I've had at least one thing missing Whole Foods, it's like 50-50 whether something's missing. They at least do a good job on Whole Foods delivery, messaging you saying, we're out of this. Do you want something else? But you know, if you're making a recipe and there's a core ingredient that's left off, well, you can't make the recipe anymore. So that's why I love Amazon Fresh because they just seem to get it right every time. Okay, a couple last ones. Jason wrote in asking whether I'd ever used a virtual assistant. Feels like he's so busy managing life and considering one after he read the four-hour work week. But the time getting it set up and answering questions may not be worth it. So I kind of agree with you in that it feels like it hasn't been worth it. I've tried it in the past. I just couldn't make it work. And then a few weeks ago, Nick Gray, who's been on this show, posted a tweet thread about how he uses not one, but two virtual assistants, outlined all kinds of tasks he gives them and how he does it. He wrote a blog post about it also, and I'm ready to give it a try again. So I'll try to give an update if and when I do it and how it goes. But until then, in the show notes, I'll link out to Nick's post, which I thought was incredible. 
And hopefully that helps you think about how you might use a virtual assistant. He lists all these tasks that kind of inspired me to think about doing this. Things like scheduling appointments, running through all of his emails and unsubscribing, creating a budget template and categorizing expenses, ordering lunch, little graphic design tasks, adding photos to a blog post. So I'm excited to give this a try. It's going to be necessary to help scale the podcast. So stay tuned. So this next one's not as much a question as some advice from Phil about getting cell phone insurance free from your credit card. So he does it with the Amex Platinum and says it saved him so much money, especially over the cost of getting it from Apple or his carrier. And it actually covered his entire annual fee by using it. And so I did a little bit of research to try to make sure I'm brushed up on the latest cell phone insurance coverages. And actually, thank you so much, Phil, for writing this because I'd been using the Inc. Business Preferred because of its coverage up to $1,000 a claim which has now been reduced to 600. So it's time for me to make a change. So thank you. And here's, here's the scoop. So basically, there are a handful of cards, Amex Platinum, Capital One Venture X, Chase Freedom Flex, Inc. Business Preferred, and Built. There are others, but those are kind of the most common points cards that all offer some form of cell phone protection. Meaning, as long as you pay your cell phone bill on the card and a phone on that plan gets damaged, breaks, they will cover you. They all have a deductible. Built is 25. Platinum VentureX and Freedom Flex are 50. And the Inc. Business Preferred is 100. They all have a cap on the claim. All of them are $800 cap on the claim, except the Inc. Business Preferred is now 600. And then they all have a limit on how often you can use them. For some, it's two times a year. Some, it's three times a year. Some, it's you know $1,000 a year. And, and they'll cover your phone if something happens. Now, If your damage happens in the first 90 days, I'd highly encourage you to use the purchase protection you have to cover your phone because it usually has a higher cap and no deductible. But if something happens after 90 days and you pay your cell phone on your card, this is a great option if you break your phone, crack your screen or anything. However, recently I noticed that carriers, at least Verizon in my case, offers a $10 a month per line discount to pay with a debit card or the Verizon credit card, which from my Quick looking doesn't make sense to get, which means that I'm effectively paying Verizon $50 a month to be able to get this insurance policy. So I did some quick math and I was like, okay, I'm paying $50 a month. And, and technically two of those lines are my sister's, not mine, because we have a family plan. So I'm paying $30 a month to be able to have insurance on three phones. And if any of those, something happens to any of those phones, obviously I can cover it with a deductible with, you know, in this case with my credit card. But is it actually worth it to just pay on my debit card, make the $30 a month? So I did the math and I said, okay, $30 a month times 12 months, I'm making $360 a year. It kind of means that if if you get a cracked screen once a year, it's a wash. If you break your phone or you damage it beyond a screen, it's a better deal. And if you never crack your screen, then it's, it's actually probably better for you to just make the $10 per month per line and pay out of pocket for your phone. So I think It's a personal decision for you. And if your carrier doesn't charge you to pay with a credit card, then it's a no-brainer. Definitely put it on a card that gives you cell phone insurance. But for me, now I'm actually wondering if it makes sense because I don't break my phone that often. And you know, if it's within the first 90 days, you can use your purchase protection. So I'm actually thinking it might make more sense to switch to paying my cell phone plan with a debit card and just keep the $10 a month per line and know that I'm going to have to pay out of pocket if something happens. But Thank you, Phil, for bringing this up, not only because it helped me realize I'm using the wrong card and 
gave me a reason to kind of think about the decision I'm making. But because I think a lot of you out there are probably in a situation where you might have a card that includes cell phone coverage and you might not be using it to pay your cell phone bill. So hopefully this can help out. Finally, very fitting last question came in on Instagram. How do I not get overwhelmed trying to optimize everything? So I don't have a great answer here. And it's something I want to think about and, and maybe cover again in the future as I've put more time into it. For me, I really enjoy this. So it doesn't feel overwhelming to go deep on a topic that I'm interested in, but it does take a lot of time and that time comes at an expense. So one of the things I've been working on is just trying to find stopping points where I'm just, this is optimized enough. So it's, we've narrowed it down to three great hotels, stop, pick one, move on. You know, I'm trying to figure out how to get a good deal, but I'm at the point that I'm not likely to save any more than extra $5, stop, move on. So I, I've come up with thresholds where it's if, if the purchase is under $100, I'll, I might spend a few minutes finding a coupon code because I'm not going to go crazy. But if it's $1,000, I'm going to spend a lot more time to try to find a coupon, see if I buy one on Craigslist and all that. So I just come up with these stopping points that you know I'm, I'm at the right point. And then I have someone, which is my wife in almost all cases, where I'm like, hey, should we keep going? And it's so much easier for her to be like, no, stop. And by the way, the same thing works in reverse. There is a point where... I remember when we were trying to introduce our first daughter to solid foods, my wife was doing all of this research, trying to find and create meal plans. And, and she was like, gosh, I feel like this is overwhelming. And I was like, was well, there any other way? She's like, well, there's this service. They come with a meal plan. I think it's called Solid Starts. And it was fantastic. Full endorsement here. And she was like, well, they have a meal plan, but you have to pay for it. And I can't remember how much it was, but it was under $100. And I was like, you've spent hours. You could keep spending hours. I think it's just worth it. And it's funny how... If I were in the same situation she was, it would have been so easy for her to tell me to stop, pay the $100 and be done. And, but in the moment, it's so much harder. So if I'm ever feeling like I'm going too far, I just check in with her and she often puts me on the right path and I do the same thing. So that's one tip I have. But I will spend a little bit more time thinking about this because I think it's an important question. But if you enjoy it, you know, maybe it's not as overwhelming as it would be if if it was something you found stressful. So if that's your case, I would say pick the areas in life where it's more enjoyable and focus your optimization energy there. Okay, that is it for this mailbag question. Thank you so much to everyone who sent questions in. I got a bunch of other questions that are related to travel, points, miles, money that I didn't tackle today and I'm gonna tackle soon. You know, I've, I've actually even been thinking about a format that My First Million uses where they take one question every Friday and they tackle that as like a bonus episode. So a lot of ideas on what I can be doing here. I'm excited to keep helping answer questions, sharing more information. Thank you so much for listening and sending things in. If you have questions, please send them in. I love doing this. Chris at allthehacks.com or feel free to DM me, Instagram, Twitter, wherever you can find me. Any channel works. I think that's all I have. So thank you so much again for listening and I'll see you next week. I really hope you enjoyed this episode. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already left a rating and a review for the show in Apple Podcasts or Spotify, I would really appreciate it. And if you have any feedback on the show, questions for me, or just want to say hi, I'm Chris at allthehacks.com or at Hutchins on Twitter. That's it for this week. I'll see you next week.
What's the best way to help you and your finances thrive? The answer can be overwhelming with all the financial misinformation out there. So I want to talk about an amazing resource, the NerdWallet Smart Money Podcast, where every week, NerdWallet's in-house experts and financial journalists set things straight and help you make smart decisions with your money. The nerds have already helped me get smarter about saving money on groceries, avoiding some of the latest financial scams, and boosting my credit score since it's actually been going a little bit up and a little bit more down lately as I've been taking advantage of a few recent credit card offers. They also explain the real impact that the latest financial headlines could have on your life so you'll get the clarity you need to make smart decisions with confidence. Weekly financial check-ins with smart money help you spend more time doing what matters and less time worrying about what doesn't. Let NerdWallet's trusted experts untangle today's web of financial misinformation. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast on your favorite podcast app. Future you will thank you.